Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is episode 15, The Beginning. Please note that today's episode does include adult content. We will be discussing what it is like in Alabama prisons, which includes graphic details of violence and sexual content. So please use caution. This is an ongoing story, so if you're just getting started, you may want to go back and start with episode one and then catch up with us later. If you've been with us from the beginning, please don't forget to subscribe. You can listen on your favorite listening app. You can also listen on our website, aggravatingcircumstances.com, and we would love some five-star reviews. Last, never first, no worse since birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, <laughs> she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see as far as uh, the podcast is concerned as, like, wrapping it up? What, what do you see uh, as a... It won't get wrapped up until you're out. So, you know, (laughs) I mean, so there's that. (laughs) Today's episode is a little bit like a ping pong ball bouncing around the room. We're going to hit on a bunch of different topics. And I'm going to discuss in some way three pretty famous cases. Uh, Curtis Flowers, Carrie Max Cook, and Tara Grinstead. So all that's to come, but I wanted to start out with an update on Destry's case. As you heard in the last episode, we did get his federal habeas response from the federal court that denied his appeal. This was a massive blow, as you can imagine, to everyone involved, but we have gained some pretty significant legal support, and we have a team of attorneys that believe in his innocence and quite a few people that are working on this. So the next step for Destry is to find a way to get him back into court. We have several people donating their time, which is really amazing because these cases can literally run in hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And so I've had lots of people ask how they can help. And we do have a a relatively small amount of legal expenses that we have incurred. And this is to help do the research through his case to find an avenue to get him back into court. We all believe that if we can get him another chance in court, that he will be exonerated. The legal fees that we have for the research is $4,000. We have already raised $2,970. So we're actually very close to the $4,000. If you would like to help, 
you can donate through the, there's two ways you can go to the website, aggravatingcircumstances.com, and there is a link there to donate. You can also go to the Facebook page for Aggravating Circumstances Podcast, and there's a Facebook fundraiser. And if you want to contact me directly, you could send us a check, anything you'd like to do. Feel free to reach out to me directly at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. 100% of the money will go towards the Destry McKinney Legal Defense Fund and everything will go towards his legal fees. I do not uh, take money for this podcast at all. We have no sponsors for advertising and everything I do for this is out of my own pocket. So none of it will go to me. It all goes to Destry. And thank you so much for offering support and thank you for your support. And I will now get back to today's episode. This episode is being recorded in part on September 8th of 2020, and there have been some big true crime cases in the news this week that I wanted to talk about. And I also wanted to go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about, you know, why the heck wrongful convictions are important and why I care about them and how this happened. And it's interesting to me because lots of people ask me where I came up with this and why this is something that I'm putting so much focus and effort into. And it's interesting because I do have a very good friend who's in prison, but my passion for wrongful convictions happened before he ever went to to jail. And I was in an eighth grade social studies class and they discussed wrongful convictions. And I'm not sure which case they talked about. I want to say that it was something that involved several people. And I even went through and researched several of the cases that would have been in that era to try to figure out which case it was. But I'm not sure. But I remember being outraged. And they talked about these young men who were convicted for something they didn't do. They spent a long time in prison. Eventually, they were exonerated and let out. And it so violated my sense of what is right that we could lock someone away for something they did not do. I immediately wanted to do something about it. And then my friend, not his real name, Kevin, went to prison and he had a life without parole sentence. It was such an awakening for me. One of the things that I discovered, I had no idea what it was like to be in prison. Alabama prisons are violent, disgusting, dangerous hell holes. I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying that because it's true. I didn't know that. I thought that what we saw on television about prisons with the violence and the assaults and the gangs and the drugs was just television. Like I didn't know that was reality. And then as I learned more talking to Kevin, I found out that these places are unbelievable. And it's offensive that they call them Department of Corrections because they're not correcting anything. They're killing people. They're maiming people. They're destroying their health. I had a, an interaction recently with someone on the internet about what it's like to be in prison. And they had this Pollyanna view that they get free medical care and they, oh, it's lovely. And prisoners that get out want to go back, which is oh, so not true. And so 
I wanted to bring in some conversations I'd actually had with Kevin, but due to his circumstances, I cannot use him on the podcast. So we have a voice actor named Billy Martin, who did an amazing job. And we're going to recreate some of the conversations I've had with Kevin about what it's like to be in prison. Even if being in prison was nice, which it's not, this is just one more reason why we should really care about wrongful convictions. If we're going to put people in these abysmal situations, we sure better hope that they are the guilty party. With no further ado, we will introduce Billy Martin as the voice actor playing Kevin, and we're going to talk a little bit about this topic. Hey, Kevin, it's been suggested to me to talk about what it's really like in prison because there's this myth that people think it's cushy, like, oh, it's free room and board and you get three hot meals a day and there's free medical care. And as you know, none of that is true or accurate. Nope, nope. Uh, you're technically just a slave. You know, they can force you to work and uh, punish you if you don't. Uh, then they make you pay for your medical care, at least a copay, which, of course, people on the street, you know, they pay a copay, too. But, uh, you know, they make you pay here whether you got the money or not. They'll debit your account. If you ever get some money, they'll take that. You know, uh, most of the time when you go to sick call, they won't even give you anything but some Tylenol or ibuprofen. I mean, it took it, it took me three months to convince them I had cancer on my back. Didn't they give you the runaround and make you try some creams and stuff before they would do anything about it? Y yeah, they made me try cream for... It's like first you sign up to see this gatekeeper. And he, like, asked all these questions. And, you know, like, for instance, I went up there to get a tooth pulled. So I put on my sick call request, you know, I got terrible pain in my tooth. I, I, I need my tooth pulled. So I have to see this gatekeeper before I can see a dentist. And, you know, I'm not seeing the dentist for like two or three weeks. And, uh, but I saw this gatekeeper and he's asking me questions. Well, how bad does it hurt? You know, like on a scale of one to 10 and, and like, how do you know you have a cavity or, or how do you know it's cracked? I'm just, dude, I just need a tooth pulled, you know, like, you know, please. Well, if it's not an emergency, you know, you'll see the dentist within 14 days. It's like, I'm, thanks a lot. You know, m meanwhile, I'm in pain, you know, giving $8 a tube for Orgel at the store, uh, you know, just to be able to sleep. Yeah. And didn't you tell me that when you finally saw the dentist, they didn't pull it the the first time? He didn't. He didn't. He put some of that uh, what uh, fluoride cream on it and told me that would make it better. And so uh, then I got to go back through the gatekeeper again, right, you know, to get him to go back and pull it the second time. And like my friend Moose, he went up there complaining of pain in his side, and they told him he just had a hernia. They told him this for like three or four months when he was going up there. Well, finally, they do some tests. He's got stage four cancer. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, he died the same day they diagnosed him. He'd been going up there for at least three or four months complaining of pain. You know, it's like, I mean, there's this guy who for 10 years had this huge bulging hernia out of his side. I mean, it looked like he was carrying a small bag of, you know, water, you know, inside his shirt or something. It took him like 10 years to get that fixed. 
I mean, you know, I mean, they're not okay. I must say the medical care is not top notch, you know. This is definitely my next topic for the podcast. I realize I'll probably be preaching to the choir because people that listen to this kind of podcast probably already know that prisons are terrible places. But for anyone that doesn't, this is certainly something that I think everyone should know about. How are we going to get meaningful reform if they don't know? And it's like that woman that I talked to that said, oh, no, prisoners like prison. They want to stay in prison. Didn't you tell me about somebody who had been there for 40 or 50 years and had nothing on the outside and he still wants to get out? Exactly. I mean, you know, everybody wants a chance to be free again. Uh, You know, there's a guy here. He's been locked up like 50 years. He's 80 something years old. Every day he wakes up and packs his stuff. The other day, the warden come by for temperature checks, and uh, he actually told the warden he'd like to go home today. You know, I mean, he, he's like a 84, 85. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, on paper, it seems like they treat us pretty well. Uh, like uh, the menu this morning had hash browns, you know. Unfortunately, hash browns in this place amount to some watery sliced potatoes. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, hey, are, are you still there? I, I'm still here. Uh, I I thought maybe I lost you. Tell me again what time they serve breakfast. About 3.30. 3.30 a.m. 3.30 in the morning. I mean, the only reason that they would serve breakfast at 3.30 in the morning is so that people aren't going to get up to get it. So that way they don't actually have to feed them. So this whole thing about three hot meals a day, no, they're doing what they can to not actually do that. That's true. I mean, they probably see less than half the people that go to lunch go to breakfast. Uh, Yeah. And and maybe not even that many, maybe just a third or a fourth. Uh, Most people just don't get up and go that way. You know, it's too early. You know, it's way too early. Well, you still have to work. So if you get up that early for breakfast, then you still have to work later. And isn't that more of a, a normal schedule? What time you go to work? Oh, yeah. We we go to work about 730. Okay, so you've got four hours. So, I mean, what is that? You're going to get up and go to breakfast and then go back to bed before you have to get back to work? I mean, what 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 is that? <laughs> you know, well, that's what most people do, actually. You know, they get up and they stumble up there. Before I go on to the next conversation with Kevin, I want to mention a couple of things. So... You just heard Kevin's story about this terrible toothache he had. And one of the things that he told me was you can't get a tooth fixed. Like he gave up years ago on asking for a filling or some kind of repair because they just won't do it. He said the only time that he's ever had success is just saying, please pull it. And the other thing is he has been in prison for 30 years and he's never had his teeth cleaned. They cannot get them cleaned, even if his support structure, like us, paid to have his teeth cleaned. That's not an option. Can you imagine going three decades without having your teeth cleaned? Dental care affects your entire body. And if your teeth are rotting out of your head, we know from all the data that it drastically shortens your lifespan. So they let him have skin cancer for months. They let his friend die of stage four cancer and told him it was a hernia. They don't get their teeth cleaned. This is not what I would call free medical care. This is crazy. The other thing I would mention is that these are prisons in the South where it's hot and humid and they do not have air conditioning. 
And it surprises me how many people don't know that. Most of the prisons in our country do not have air conditioning. And while I realize that lots of people live without air conditioning, the difference is they're not locked in a box. They can open a window. They can put a fan in the window. They can go outside. They can get in their car and run the AC. They can go to the public library and enjoy the air conditioning. They can go to the mall. What you can't do when you're in an Alabama prison with no air conditioning is do any of those things. I just really want to dispel this myth that anything about being in prison is nice. So carrying on, here's the next conversation I had with Kevin on this topic. Okay, I'm back. Okay. So they shave your head and they strip your butt neck and in front of a whole bunch of people you don't know, and they spray you for bugs. It's like, just, it's terribly humiliating, you know? So they shave everyone's head? No, no exceptions? Yeah, it's like when you get to Kilby, uh, they cut all your hair off. I mean, it's like, and then they stripped you naked. You're standing there in this cage, you know, with all these other dudes. And then they line you up and they start spraying you this stuff, which I guess is supposed to kill, I don't know, lice or mites or, you know, whatever. It's really, really humiliating. And then they let you put your clothes back on. And then they they start going through all the stuff you brought with you, you know, like from jail, and they make you throw all, almost all of it away. And I mean, you know, it's like you can keep one of these or one of these or, you know, whatever. And, you know, I got there and I mean, I didn't know how to do anything and I didn't have anything. So they stick me in um, this isolation ward and literally there's nobody, there's nobody you can't. See, I can't see. I can't hear anybody. And uh, the only time I see another person is when they come by to give me my food. And I didn't even know how to deal with my dirty clothes. And my sink didn't have any running water in this sale. And I remember, you know, I asked a runner one time, I said, you know, how do you how do you get your clothes washed? And he tells me, so we just uh, throw it out here. And what he meant was, I'm supposed to put my stuff in the laundry bag and sit it outside the door, and they wash it and bring it back. But I didn't know that. I didn't know there was such a thing as a laundry bag. I didn't have one, and nobody told me. So I just started with uh, putting my clothes out there dirty. And, of course, none of them uh, were, I know it's like they're just throwing it away, you know. It's going to end up. Hardly having any clothes. This is horrible, you know. And then they finally took me to a place where there's other inmates. And these are the most loud, disrespectful, terrible. I remember there was one guy right next to me. Uh, He was obviously mentally ill and he kept screaming. He was screaming all day. My feet are on fire. My feet are on fire. Ah, you know, the only way I can get him to shut up for 10 or 15 minutes would be to give him a cigarette or something. Yeah, you know, you're in a little bitty cramped cell. I mean, it's probably like four feet by seven, you know, the toilet. It's just terrible. It's it's really bad. Yeah. Was there air conditioning? Oh, no, 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 no air conditioning. And uh, I got there during the summer. And it was sweltering hot. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they take you to shower like three times a week and uh, let you stay in there for like five minutes. And 
It's just, it's just really bad. It was really bad. I remember I paid the uh, haul runner to leave the ice keg right in front of my sail. It's like they would uh, let a runner come up and down the row and pass out ice. Well, my sail was in the middle, like right in the middle of the row. And uh, I was able to convince him to leave it like uh, right in front of my sail. So, I mean, you know, kind of like a halfway point. So, so what is that? It looks like an ice keg that I could uh, like reach out through the bars and get ice. But uh, then I get here. Uh, they transfer me here. And when I get to the back gate, they don't escort me around. They don't show me the place. I don't talk to anybody. They just say, uh, your new cell is G3C. That's the first cell I went to. They don't tell me how to get there. They don't tell me nothing. I mean, and I'm supposed to carry my stuff up this long tunnel and just move in, you know. I mean, they don't give you any handbook or nothing. They don't They don't tell you anything. You're supposed to learn everything from the other inmates, which can be terribly uh, dangerous. And so, like, you know, th- they may not be giving you the right information. You know what I mean? But they just don't care. I mean, they don't. They don't introduce you to anybody. You don't meet the captain. You don't meet a sergeant or anybody. Or just you throw you off in a block. Uh, They put me in a block. It was nicknamed the Thunderdome. And so you can imagine how bad that was. Wait, the the Thunderdome? Yeah, the Thunderdome is what they called it. It was uh, the worst block in the whole prison back in 1994. And uh, then I'm I'm in a cell with this dude who jacks his dick all day, you know, like in the door playing. I mean, we would have women that work the cube and he'd get butt naked and stand in the door of the cell and just m- masturbate. You know, I mean, just that's what he did all day. And it's like I was like, I didn't even try to move out of this block because I thought the whole prison was like this. You know, I thought the whole prison uh, was the same way. You know, there's all kind of drugs and all kind of alcohol, all kind of fights. It's just uh, like, you know, oh, hell, this is life now. And uh, they didn't have an honor dorm. They didn't have a faith dorm. Uh, They didn't have anything back then. It was just uh, life, you know. It pretty much sucked. How long were you in that dorm? I was in that dorm for four months, and I had a mental breakdown, and they put me in the infirmary because I was just like, you know, I can't live like this. I was going to kill myself is what I was going to do. And uh, I went out and told the uh, – I, I went up to the breezeway and was talking to my classification officer, who ended up becoming the prison commissioner, if you can believe that. And I told him, I said, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. And he took me to a psychiatrist, and he locked me in the infirmary. And when they moved me out of the infirmary, they put me in a different block, which was considerably better. Even though, you know, I got my stuff stole a couple of times, but from there on, I just try to move to better blocks. Uh, You know, whenever I can get to a better block, I try to move to a better block. But uh, till the honor dorm happened, and then since that time, it's been cool. But yeah, I mean, they don't they don't give you any instruction. I mean, it's amazing that anybody can come in this place and come out in any kind of way better 
then they came in, you know, because I mean, they don't set you up for success at all. They don't tell you what the programs are, what classes are available, anything. They don't tell you anything. So how do you find that stuff out? Sometimes uh, just word of mouth, you know. It's like you're just talking to people and bringing up conversations, and somebody might say, oh, yeah, you know, the psychologist, uh, he'll do a, give you a one-week anger management class if you turn in a request slip. And it's like, oh, really? You know, it's like, well, I'll turn in a request slip then. And he's like, okay, then I'll, he'll call you up there and take you through a one-week class. And, but you didn't know that. I mean, it's not a newsletter. It's not posted anywhere. Uh, yeah, how do you know what you can get? You you know, you don't. I mean, you really just got to stay in these people's faces and bug the shit out of them till they let you do what they're supposed to let you do anyway. And then they turn down parole for people because you didn't take enough classes that they never told you about. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like Life Without Kent take therapeutic community which is a drug treatment program so if you've been in prison with life without for 30 years and you get your sentence overturned right before you're supposed to come up for parole you don't have time to finish an 18 month course you see what i'm saying you can take you can't take a trade you can't get an education beyond a ged if you've got life without parole so this whole time i've been in prison i couldn't take a trade you know, because uh, if uh, it's crazy, you know, it's like they don't set you up for anything in here. It, it sucks. I just made the best of it. That's OK. But anyway, uh, I guess um, I guess I better let you go for now. There's probably people who need to use the phones. But uh, OK, it's it's been good talking to you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, as always, stay safe. I will do my best. And uh I'll talk to you again soon. I hope you enjoyed the voice acting by Billy Martin of Savage Podcasting. I think he did a terrific job. If you need a voice actor, definitely reach out to him. Thank you again, Billy. It was fantastic. And Billy will be a recurring role and we'll have more from him in the future. So this week, the big news is Curtis Flowers. If you don't know who Curtis Flowers is, you're about to find out. And if you're looking for your next podcast to listen to before season two of Aggravating Circumstances comes out, absolutely check out the podcast called In the Dark. Season two is about the Curtis Flowers case, and it is both seasons are obviously worth listening to. But if you want to know about Curtis Flowers, listen to season two. Curtis Flowers was wrongfully convicted in Winona, Mississippi, in 1996. This case was racist, egregious prosecutorial misconduct. The crazy thing about this case is Curtis was not tried once or twice or three times or four times. Curtis was tried six times for something that he did not do. And here's the thing. Every time he had a trial, he was convicted by typically an all-white jury because the prosecutor systematically made sure in Mississippi that a black man had an all-white jury. I know you've heard this before on my podcast, but this was 96, not 65. And the case would get thrown out because of prosecutorial misconduct. And here's the part where I just can't believe that this is still happening today. He would get the case thrown out 
and he would get a new trial. And the DA, who performed so much misconduct and such racist actions and broke the rules so many times, would just try him again. Why is the state of Mississippi allowing this? They let this district attorney, his name is Doug Evans, try this guy six times. Do you know how much money, tax dollar money, this man wasted going after someone who did not commit the crime? So we've got someone who's fighting for his life in prison who's innocent. And we've got the real killer still out there somewhere doing whatever that person does. And I... I'm so upset about this case. So the amazing thing is, so trial number six happens. Guess what? It gets thrown out. I will read the comments from the Supreme Court. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they basically said this case is unbelievable, and this prosecutor did so much misconduct, and it was so terrible, and there's no way we're, we're throwing the whole thing out. Do you know what this guy did? He got on the news and said, no problem. I'm going to try him a seventh time. They never stop. It is so astonishing to me that these DAs that do this, there's so many that even when faced with overwhelming evidence of innocence, they just dig in further. They say, oh, no, 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 I've still got the right guy. Like, they cannot admit that they did something wrong for anything. And that's what this guy did. He said, I'm just going to try him a seventh time. Well, fortunately, um, hopefully public pressure or something stepped in, and he did recuse himself from the case. And this week, the news came out, and the state attorney general who took over the case, said, oh, no, 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 no. We are not trying him again, and he gets to go free. Hallelujah. I mean, really? This should have happened 20-something years ago. So I'm going to read a couple of things about this case. One is a thesis statement by Lucy Pruitt, and I'm going to read a little bit of her thesis because it's fantastic, and she talks about this case. And I'm also going to read what the Supreme Court said. Here's a little bit from the Supreme Court finding. Our review of the history of the prosecutor's peremptory strikes in Flowers' first four trials strongly support the conclusion that his use of peremptory strikes in Flowers' sixth trial was motivated in substantial part by discriminatory intent. Stretching across Flowers' first four trials, the state employed its peremptory strikes to remove as many black prospective jurors as possible. The state appeared to proceed as if Batson had never been decided. Batson is the case where they decided that it violates your rights to remove people by race from the jury. The state's relentless determined effort to rid the jury of black individuals strongly suggests that the state wanted to try flowers before a jury with as few black jurors as possible and ideally before an all-white jury. And of course, this is in Mississippi, where a county where the majority of people are black, not white. So having an all-white jury for an African-American for a trial is some serious To Kill a Mockingbird crap. Next, I'm going to read the introduction from a thesis written by Lucy Pruitt, It's called Analysis of Prosecutorial Power and Discretion in Mississippi, Evaluating Proposals to Address Misconduct and Abuse. And her introduction from her thesis 
talks about Curtis Flowers, and I thought that this was pretty powerful. Introduction. In 1996, Curtis Flowers, an African-American man from Winona, Mississippi, was charged with the murders of four people at a local furniture store. Maintaining his innocence for over 20 years, Flowers was tried and convicted of the crime not once or even twice, but six times. In each of the trials, the leading prosecutor was District Attorney Doug Evans, who committed prosecutorial misconduct and abused his powers of discretion endlessly throughout the duration of this entire case, was never professionally disciplined or stopped. Flowers continued appealing his convictions and having them overturned due to misconduct by Doug Evans after each trial. Those outside of Winona or a surrounding area probably had not learned of this strange and unsettling case until a group of investigative journalists decided to figure out exactly what was keeping this case from final resolution. The reasons they found were none other than pervasive instances of prosecutorial misconduct, abuses of power, and lack of any accountability or disciplinary measures to follow, even when they resulted in the overturning of convictions. The case eventually made its way to the Supreme Court of the United States in early 2020, drawing new waves of media and public attention to Mississippi's criminal justice system. The case of Curtis Flowers raises two key questions. One, why can a prosecutor continue to abuse his power with no professional discipline or accountability? And two, how frequently does prosecutorial abuse of power take place in Mississippi? The main issue at hand is that most prosecutors' offices do not attempt to gather basic information about their practices, nor write and publish policies which guide their decision-making or inform the public. The most comprehensive nationwide survey of state prosecutors' offices, completed by the Urban Institute in 2018, found little prosecutorial data collection, even in terms of basic case records. The survey collected data on foundational case information, which included the number of cases per office, number of charges, and records of case proceedings. The study's results reported that less than half of the offices nationally surveyed collect these basic data points, and even fewer publish the results. Only 24% of offices surveyed reported making any available data analyses public. This lack of data collection has long been the norm among prosecutors' offices for a variety of reasons, but besides the hassle involved in developing more bureaucratic paperwork, it is mostly due to the fact that there are almost no legal requirements that prosecutors record or publish any data. Because state prosecutors are not required to record or report information regarding their cases, the only cases of prosecutorial misconduct or abuse of power which are recognized or documented are those which the court system has been forced to acknowledge and resolve. Unless called to attention, these injustices may go unrecognized and unresolved. Further, this lack of data means the frequency by which these incidences of prosecutorial misconduct or abuse of power happening is unknown, and there is no telling how many have happened in the past. Many of these cases of misconduct go unnoticed or unfought for years or even decades. So this tells us that one of the reasons prosecutors get away with this is no one's looking. There's no requirement for them to keep track or publish any of the things that they do. And this makes holding them accountable even harder. And this brings me to the case of Carrie Max Cook. Carrie Max Cook may be one of the worst wrongful convictions in the history of the United States. Now, granted, they're all bad. Anytime you send someone who's innocent to prison, it's bad. But Carrie spent 20 years being horrifically attacked and abused 
on death row in Texas. Carrie is another case where they tried him over and over. He had four trials. The difference in what sets Carrie apart is that most of these wrongful convictions, when they are eventually overturned, they don't go after the prosecutor. And they essentially, a lot of these require the prosecutor to cooperate in some way in order to get free. And so this is another way that the prosecutors get away with it. Why, you know, there's no accountability. And then they make these deals where as long as they don't have any prosecutorial misconduct charges, then they'll agree to some kind of resolution. And Carrie Max Cook is one of the few people who stood up and said no. This is not okay. There was a large amount about this on the Truth and Justice podcast. And if you're familiar with that case, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're not familiar, essentially the Innocence Project made a deal with the prosecutor to help Carrie get his innocence. And in that, they dropped all the prosecutorial misconduct charges. And Carrie Max Cook said no. Someone has to stand up to them. This is not okay. If someone never stands up to them, it's never going to get fixed. And I've read a lot of innocence cases. And honestly, he's the only one I know that stood up and said, this can't keep happening. If you have not read his book, it's called Chasing Justice. You should definitely read Carrie's book. Hopefully we'll have more from Carrie in the future. He's a, a remarkable and amazing individual. And he is possibly the bravest person I've ever met because he is willing in the face of overwhelming persecution and personal penalty to stand up and say, no, it is not okay that these prosecutors continue to get away with this. I'm not going to make a deal in order to drop everything they did and let them continue to abuse the system. And this brings me to the latest case in the news of Tara Grinstead. She disappeared from Georgia in 2005. She was a teacher and a beauty queen. And there was a podcast, season one of Up and Vanish, talks about the disappearance of Tara Grinstead. That's another podcast you should listen to while you're waiting for season two of Aggravating Circumstances to come out. And during the podcast, they found the killer, which was remarkable. And it was even more remarkable because he wasn't on the list of suspects at all. No one had any idea who this guy was. Well, it came out in the news this week that he has appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court about funding for an investigator for his case. And this ties into the Destry McKinney case, which season one of Aggravating Circumstances is about, because there is a whole lot about an investigator and a whole lot about a whole bunch of inappropriate subpoenas that were issued. And there were days and days in court in front of the judge while the judge screamed at his defense attorneys and the investigator that they hired. And oh my goodness, this is a crazy story. So... It's interesting that Georgia is taking up the case about who should pay for an investigator for Tara Grinstead's case and Ryan Dukes, who is the accused murderer, because this came up in Destry McKinney's case because he definitely needed an investigator and the state basically said, nope, not paying. 
And there's a lot more to that, which we will talk about in our next episode. So if you haven't listened to Up and Vanished, definitely check it out. If you haven't listened to In the Dark, definitely check that out. And hopefully this wasn't too, I feel like I flitted around the room while doing this episode. And um, hopefully you found it at least somewhat entertaining. And as always, fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. Everyone stay safe and we will see you next time.